Hi there, my name is Georgia Kadair. I'm a third year biomedical engineering student in NUI Galway, and today I will be speaking about all things brain aneurysms. From what an aneurysm is, what causes them, prevalence, and what engineers can do to help treat them. I hope you enjoy. So to begin, what is an aneurysm? To put it simply, an aneurysm is a bulge in an artery that develops when the walls of an artery are weak and become stretched, therefore ballooning and filling with blood. Aneurysms can occur anywhere along the circulatory system, but are commonly found in the aorta and the blood vessels of the brain. Brain aneurysms, also known as cerebral or intracranial aneurysms, often arise where large arteries split and branch off because these points are weak. There are three different classifications of brain aneurysms saccular fusiform or mycotic. A saccular aneurysm gets its name because it is a round sac of blood attached to an artery or its branches. A fusiform, on the other hand, bulges around the whole artery, while a mycotic aneurysm results from an infection of the arteries in the brain, leading to weakened walls of the blood vessels. Risk factors for developing aneurysms include high blood pressure, smoking and ageing. They can also be caused by genetic diseases that result in weakened connective tissue and therefore affect the strength of blood vessel walls, such as Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. Polycystic kidney disease, arteriovenous malformations and a history of aneurysms in a parent or sibling also increase the risk of developing an aneurysm. The worldwide incidence rate of brain aneurysms is approximately 3.2%, with 1 in 100 adults having one. It is important to note that they can occur at any age, but are most common between the ages of 30 to 60 years old. Women are 60% more likely to develop aneurysms than men, but this increases to even twice as likely after the age of 50. This is thought to be due to a decrease in estrogen circulating in the body, and therefore causes a reduction in collagen in the vascular tissue. Most brain aneurysms do not rupture, but for those that do, roughly 10 in 10,000 cause subarachnoid hemorrhage, with the rate being higher in Finnish and Asian populations. After a subarachnoid hemorrhage, half of patients die within the first month, and for those who survive, half will be dependent on others. For patients with known ruptures, the mortality rate is 20%, and the morbidity rate is 30-40%. to 40%. Now you are probably interested to hear what the symptoms are. Unfortunately, aneurysms often do not show any symptoms until they are very large or rupture. Once ruptured, an extremely severe and sudden headache arises, commonly described by patients as the worst headache of their lives. People may also experience double vision or dilation of one pupil, nausea, stiff neck, seizures, unconsciousness or cardiac arrest. Sadly, a quarter of patients die before receiving medical attention. So how do we treat brain aneurysms? Well, treatment methods vary. Some won't require treatment at all if they are small and asymptomatic. There are several factors to consider when deciding whether to undergo treatment, such as the size and location of the aneurysm, along with the age and general health of the patient. If treatment is decided against, the aneurysm is monitored every two to three years using an MRI or CAT scan. For symptomatic aneurysms, the treatment options involve surgery or endovascular coiling. The surgical procedure is called neurosurgical clipping and involves clamping off the neck of the aneurysm using a tiny metal clip. The surgery is quite invasive 
As the aneurysm is reached by removing a small portion of the skull, dissecting the dura and separating blood vessels by using a microscope. Don't worry, it all takes place under general anesthesia. The endovascular coiling may be a more attractive approach for some, as it is less invasive. It involves the work of biomedical engineers too. This procedure is performed by first putting a catheter into the femoral artery and then passing it up to the affected blood vessel. Once in place, a microcatheter containing platinum coils is guided by the initial catheter to the site of the aneurysm. These coils cause the blood to clot and close off the aneurysm. Both procedures are associated with their own risks, but endovascular coiling has been shown to be slightly more successful. Biomedical engineers continue to work on the design of the catheter used in order to reduce the risks associated with the procedure and to improve the success rate. That's all for me. I hope you enjoyed and thanks for listening. Hello, my name is Kira Douglas and welcome to my short podcast on Alzheimer's disease, where I'm going to give you a quick run through of the disease, its symptoms and its treatments. Alzheimer's disease is a degenerative, irreversible brain disease, meaning it gets worse over time and the effects cannot be undone. It is the most common cause of dementia, corresponding to around 60 to 70% of the approximately 50 million cases worldwide. The most common type of Alzheimer's is late onset, with symptoms showing in people aged in their 60s or older. But around 10% of people with Alzheimer's suffer from early onset Alzheimer's, with symptoms showing as early as their 30s. This type is thought to be caused mainly by genetics. For example, most people with Down syndrome develop Alzheimer's, which is thought to be due to having an extra copy of chromosome 21, the chromosome that contains the gene that creates the protein amyloid, which plays a role in the development of Alzheimer's. The more frequent late-onset Alzheimer's is theorized to be due to a mixture of possible causes, including environmental factors, lifestyle, less time in formal education, and genetics. For example, the gene APOEE4 has proven to increase a person's risk of developing late-onset Alzheimer's more than any other gene. However, the presence of this gene does not guarantee that the disease will develop. Despite having an idea of these risk factors, we still really don't understand the true cause in most cases. There are two hallmark pathologies or physical markers of Alzheimer's disease. The first is that deposits of the protein fragment beta amyloid, from the protein amyloid which we've already mentioned, accumulate and form plaques outside the neurons in the brain. And the second is that within these cells, strands of the protein tau become twisted, known as tau tangles. These plaques and tangles tend to occur naturally as we age, but in the case of a patient with Alzheimer's, more of them develop and in a more predictable pattern. They tend to begin in the areas of the brain responsible for memory before spreading further. We still are not entirely sure how these pathologies actually instigate and affect the development of Alzheimer's disease, but most experts believe that these formations block communication between neurons and block nutrient transportation within the cells. This leads to the atrophy or shrinking and then death of these neurons, leading to the significant shrinking of the whole brain tissue over time. It is believed that these attributes of Alzheimer's can begin in the brain up to 20 years before the symptoms begin to show externally. The earliest symptoms of Alzheimer's disease affect recent memory, making it difficult to remember new information. This can often be accompanied by increased apathy and depression. 
As the disease develops, more severe symptoms include disorientation and confusion, mood and behavior changes, and more severe memory loss, before affecting the patient's ability to even speak, swallow, and walk. Because Alzheimer's disease is very complex and isn't fully understood at the moment, current treatments focus on helping patients to manage and slow down the progression of the symptoms. One approach is the use of medication to treat some of the symptoms, such as using drugs to regulate the messages sent between neurons, or to help with the behavioural symptoms, such as sleeplessness, anxiety and aggression. Cognitive training can also be used, and another approach is to adjust lifestyles. One analysis indicates that physical activity can reduce the risk of Alzheimer's by up to 45%, while diets can be adjusted to include more fatty acids, antioxidants, fruit and veg, vitamin B6 and B12, and folate. One of the most obvious current issues with Alzheimer's is that we do not have a full understanding of the disease, its causes, or how it works. This limits our ability to address the disease. And scientists and doctors will play a huge role in gaining a better understanding of the disease. A problem that follows on from this is that most of the treatments used for Alzheimer's patients focus on managing the symptoms, not the disease within the brain. Of course, it won't be possible to focus on a cure for the disease and expect great results without a greater understanding of it. But I believe that it is equally as important to look at actually limiting its effects. One treatment that is being looked into for this is deep brain stimulation, or DBS. This potential treatment is where electrode leads are implanted into the brain with a pulse generator implanted below the collarbone connected to the leads by wires below the skin. This is then used to deliver electrical impulses to specific areas of the brain. This system is currently used as a management for Parkinson's disease, and it was first investigated as an Alzheimer's treatment in 1984, before being abandoned for 26 years. When DBS was then being investigated to treat obesity in 2008, the researchers saw improvements in areas that could help with Alzheimer's. So, the investigation of DBS for Alzheimer's was again focused on in 2010 with improvements in memory, reduced cognitive decline, reverse glucose metabolism, and an increase in the volume of the hippocampus, an area in the brain with a major role in memory and learning. Since then, multiple studies have been carried out, although the small sizes of these are limiting to the progression of this potential treatment. Despite this, the results so far look promising for the use of DBS to treat Alzheimer's disease, and biomedical engineers could play a huge role in the making and improving of this so-called brain pacemaker if the studies on this topic continue to prove effective. That is all I have for today, and I would like to thank you for listening to this podcast. I hope you found it as informative and interesting as I found the research behind it. Hi, my name is Zoe Mallon, and I'm a third-year biomedical engineering student in NUI Galway. The topic of my podcast today is Alzheimer's disease and the role scientists and engineers can play in addressing the problems associated with this disease. But what is Alzheimer's? To fully understand Alzheimer's disease, you must first look at dementia. Dementia is the term used for a range of diseases that damage the brain, resulting in problems with memory and cognitive function, as well as issues with behavioural and social skills, and eventually the loss of the ability to carry out simple everyday tasks. There are approximately 100 different diseases which can cause dementia, such as frontotemporal dementia, vascular dementia, Alzheimer's disease, and dementia with Lewy bodies. In some cases, a patient may suffer from mixed dementia, which is when there is more than one cause. 
Alzheimer's disease is the most common cause of dementia, accounting for over 80% of cases. It is a progressive and fatal neurodegenerative disorder, which is hard to definitively diagnose, as a post-mortem examination of brain tissue is needed. In living patients, diagnosis can be aided using positron emission topography, cerebrospinal fluid, and clinical criteria. In 2015, there were 44 million people worldwide suffering from Alzheimer's disease, with this figure expected to increase to at least 88 million by 2050. In Ireland, this number was estimated to be 38,000 in 2015. If you do any research on Alzheimer's, you'll see that the understanding of the disease and the pathophysiology behind it are constantly changing, and so it's difficult to find consistent information on the exact causes of the disease. Currently, there are three main causes proposed. Amyloid beta peptide being deposited in the brain, accumulations of neurofibrillary tangles in the brain, or a dysregulation of the cholangeric system. Although the buildup of amyloid beta plaques and neurofibrillary tangles occurs most people age, in those suffering from Alzheimer's disease, a greater number tend to develop, and they start in areas of the brain vital for memory before spreading to other regions in a predictable pattern. Now, if you can bear with me for a minute, I'll go through these causes in slightly more depth. Beta amyloid, a smaller part of the larger protein amyloid precursor protein, naturally occurs in the brain, but in those with Alzheimer's, the conformation of this protein changes, causing plaques to build up. This stops cell-to-cell signaling at the synapses and causes inflammation damaging the tissues. It is these beta amyloid oligomers that affect the cholangeric synapses and lead to dysregulation of the cholangeric system. This synaptic loss is the major link to the cognitive impairment seen in Alzheimer's disease. Groups of the neurofibrillary tangles, known as tau tangles, then start to form in the surrounding neurons, blocking nutrients and other essential supplies leading to cell death. The combination of the plaque and tau tangles kills the neurons, resulting in atrophy and shrinkage of the brain. These processes can be occurring for a long time before the patient notices any changes in their cognitive function. In simple terms, the proteins in the brain stop functioning properly, which means the neurons become damaged and stop working the way they should. They then lose their connections to each other, meaning they can no longer communicate, and eventually the cells die. Currently, there is no cure for Alzheimer's disease, and although there are a few different treatments available, these do not slow down the progression of the disease or change the rate of decline in the patient or course of the illness. Instead, there are symptomatic therapies that aim to improve the qualities of life for both the patient and caregivers. At present, the two types of pharmacologic therapies available are cholinesterase inhibitors, which are given to patients with all stages of Alzheimer's disease, and memantine for patients in moderate to severe stages. Cholinesterase inhibitors aim to modify the manifestations of Alzheimer's by blocking the enzyme acetylcholinesterase. This in turn inhibits the breakdown of an important neurotransmitter, acetylcholine, which is associated with memory. The two main types of cholinesterase inhibitors available on the market are donepazil and galantamine. Unfortunately, at higher doses, these drugs can have different side effects such as diarrhea, stomach cramps, excessive sweating, nausea, irregular breathing, muscle weakness and even convulsions. While there's a lot of ongoing work to develop new types of cholinesterase inhibitors with different mechanisms of action or structures, many of these are still in preclinical stages, under development, or have only shown moderate success in clinical trials. Memantine controls the activity of glutamate, which is a neurotransmitter involved in learning and storing and retrieving information. Memantine is often used in combination with donepazil with the aim of improving attention, memory, reasoning, language, and carrying out everyday tasks. As with cholinesterase inhibitors, there are possible side effects, including dizziness, headache, confusion, and constipation. As I'm sure you can see, there's clearly a huge unmet demand for treatment that's only growing with the aging population, which is driving research in this area. 
Unfortunately, it's proving extremely difficult to develop effective treatments. From 1998 to 2011, clinical trials were carried out for 100 different therapeutic compounds, and they all failed. It is believed that many of these failed because of how the blood-brain barrier restricts the bioavailability of the drugs in the central nervous system. This is where biomedical engineers can come in. Research is currently being done to try and improve treatment strategies using biomaterials as they can cross the blood-brain barrier and target pathological sites. Biomaterial scaffolds can even guide and protect cells that can be used to regenerate brain tissue. One idea is that instead of simply treating the symptoms of Alzheimer's disease, it may be possible to transplant neural stem cells to replace the damaged neurons and improve cognition and synaptic conductivity. Possibly some of the most exciting work that's being done is in the universities of Michigan and Fribourg, where researchers are using a new technique to examine what they call 5D fingerprints. This is a measure of an individual molecule's volume, shape, rotation speed, electrical charge and propensity for binding to other molecules. It's believed that this information may aid in the development of new treatments and give doctors a better understanding of the status of neurodegenerative diseases in patients. Although it may be several years until a device is designed that can be used easily by doctors or researchers, the technology gives some hope that in the future we may have a much better understanding of Alzheimer's and other neurodegenerative diseases and how amyloid proteins are involved. While we're waiting for these new advances, there are several simple lifestyle changes that you can make to reduce your risk of developing Alzheimer's. According to Professor Sean Connelly, chair of the Dementia Research Network Ireland, almost half of all dementia cases could be prevented by better educational attainment in early life and in midlife, drinking less alcohol, stopping smoking and most importantly, exercising. Exercising aids clearance of amyloid and reduces inflammation in the brain. The earlier you start these interventions in midlife, the more effective they are at preventing dementia in later life. Thank you for listening. I hope that you now have a better understanding of Alzheimer's disease and can see that although there are many challenges in treating the disease, there is hope that soon scientists and biomedical engineers may be able to change this. Hello, my name is Darren Hunt. I welcome to my podcast for BMA 405, Elements of Pathology. In this podcast, I will discuss neurological conditions and some of the current developments and future potential for medical devices in this field. So neurological disorders are defined as conditions that are associated with brain and nerves throughout the body and spinal cord, with biochemical, electrical, and structural abnormalities in the systems of the brain, nerves, and spinal cord. There's a range of conditions that can occur in a person. Some of these examples include spinal cord injuries, Alzheimer's disease, and stroke. Each of these conditions are different in their own ways with respect to causes and symptoms. So Alzheimer's disease is a progressive brain disorder that slowly damages a person's memory and thinking skills and can eventually leave them unable to do everyday tasks. Alzheimer's disease is mainly associated with elderly people and has said up to 50 million people worldwide suffer from Alzheimer's. And with an average life to expectancy age that is rising, this figure is set to grow. In America, it is currently the sixth leading cause of death across all ages. So as I've said, the main factor is age. And in the brain, it is caused the link of aggregation of the protein beta-almoid or A-beta within the neocortex. And this is often referred to as plaque buildup when examining brain scans. So this buildup impairs the synaptic functions by interacting with the cell surface membranes and the receptors of the brain. So this modifies the signal transduction cascades and in turn, this negatively affects the neural activity. So second condition I'm going to talk about is spinal cord injuries. The spinal cord is used to transmit messages from the brain to the body, from the body to the brain. And in the case of a spinal cord injury, the transmission of this message is disconnected. So damage is generally caused by the compression or traction forces on neural net system. This can be caused by fracture or dislocation in the vertebrae discs or by ligament damage. And this causes damage to the nerve axons and the neural cell membranes. And as a result of this rupture of these cells, 
His ischemia is signaled, which kills the neighbouring cells. So hyperfusion occurs in the grey and white matter, which then blocks the transmission of action potentials acting along the spinal cord, and this then causes paraplegia. So every year there's estimated between 250,000 to 500,000 spinal cord injuries, with approximately 39% coming in road accidents, 31% in falls, and while the remainder are attributed to recreational activities and violence. The average medical cost over the lifetime for someone who suffered from a spinal cord injury can add up into the millions. So now moving on to some products and treatments available for neurological conditions. There isn't actually that many innovative medical devices on the market for patients. The brain remains one of the most complex and fascinating systems in the body, and there are 86 billion neurons acting together in the brain. And although we have a good idea how the brain works, there's a somewhat limited understanding on how to combat and reverse damage that has taken place. For someone who suffers from a neurological condition, the effect on their everyday life can range from minor to severe, in that they struggle with completion everyday tasks. So for Alzheimer's disease, there have been some developments in recent years that have looked to reduce and reverse the effects of the protein buildup on the brain. One of which is the Memory M, a product designed by NeuroEM Therapeutics. So this product is worn on the head like a hat. The device utilizes transcranial electromagnetic treatment, or TEMT, to attempt to reverse the effects of Alzheimer's disease. The cap is fitted with eight transmitters to activate 200 times per second, with just one transmitter acting at any time. And the TEMT has shown to reduce the beta amyloid buildup in and around the neurons, reducing the causing factor of Alzheimer's. In trials carried out on mice, the treatment has boosted cognitive function and reduced the neuropathology. In clinical trials to date on humans, they have shown positive results. The beta amyloid deposits were seen to reduce, and there was an enhancement of mitochondrial activity, which raised the energy production of the neurons and increased neural activity. After the treatment, Data has shown that there is a clinically significant improvement in the memory performance of patients after 60 days. So a second device that I personally find particularly interesting is the Link by the company Neuralink. The Link is a neural implant that will allow for a brain-computer interface. The tiny implant is to be roughly the size of a coin and implanted flush to the skull. So fitted on the implant is 1024 electro threads, which when we compare this to brain implant interfaces that are currently used for treating Parkinson's where there are eight electrodes is a lot. Each of these electro threads has many electrodes that will be attached to the different neurons of the brain. The electrodes are many times smaller than the thread of human ear, and so Neuralink have designed robots that are capable of tens of microns of precision for handling and tracking the electrodes to the brain at high speeds. So the initial goal of Neuralink is to allow a person with paralysis to regain some independence in their life by allowing them to control a phone or a computer. The potential of this goal has progressed well and was shown in the April 2021 update from Neuralink. In a fascinating video, a monkey that had been planted with two links in the brain was shown playing a video game of Pong with a joystick. Over 2,000 electrodes were connected to the motor cortex, which recorded the actions of the neurons controlling the hand movements. The video then progresses to show the monkey playing the game using just his mind and the link after the joystick had been disconnected. So this shows that the electrodes were recording the neuron commands and the link reflected these commands on the screen to play the game. This shows the ability to track and decode the action potential signals from the brain and represent these with the link. So similarly in a previous update from Neuralink, the link was implanted to the brain of a pig. The link was able to sense the neurons firing, controlling the snout and recording the sense of touch and smell. Also the neural activity of a pig walking was decoded and represented on screen. And this showed high accuracy between the Neuralink readings and live data recordings of sensors that were attached to the leg of the pig. It is also important to note that the link had been removed from the brains of these animals and with no side effects shown. 
In mapping this data, it shows the ability of different neuron actions controlling different bodily functions to be recorded and decoded. Now, it's still early days for Neuralink, however, they have ambitious goals to begin clinical trials later this year. In the next few years, it will become possible to create a brain-computer interface and a neural network. The potential of a project like this, with the way technology and computers are improving, is limited only by the imagination. So with the mapped out neural network, it could become possible to improve a person's memory who's suffering from Alzheimer's, or give the ability to communicate with electrosensors that are connected to neural networks of the limbs that have been disconnected in a spinal cord injury, allowing for movement, or perhaps to control an exoskeleton. In the future, perhaps, this technology will pave way for the next phase of humanity, which is human and AI as one. So, to close off, for a person who is suffering from a neurological condition, life can be extremely tough on them and the family and friends. To see someone not having the same freedom in their actions, or mentally not being the same person that they used to be, is heartbreaking. The development of these products will potentially grant them some morality back in their lives, and offer some solutions for some of the most life-changing conditions that have been faced over the course of humanity. So thank you for listening to my podcast, and I hope you found this interesting and informative.